All right, this morning's uh, scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 through 16, chapter 12. It can be found on the Pew Bible on page 821 or in the screen behind me. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest them faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given them, given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he began discussing it, as they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about the bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew, end of chapter 15. A little over a week ago, uh, I was visiting with Davis Bates, who's uh, recovering at the Whittier Rehab Center in Westboro. Uh, he's doing quite well. Uh, and he was reflecting on the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, one of uh, many of our favorites. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And Davis in particularly was laughing about how apt a metaphor it is that God would call us his sheep. Uh, They're not exactly the smartest animals in the barnyard. Uh, They're prone to wander off by themselves. Uh, They don't know how to find their own food or shelter or drink. They are utterly defenseless. If caught in the wild by a wolf or a lion or a bear, they don't even know to, to recognize the, the signs, the warning signs of when a wolf is on the approach. And so you think about that and, you know, yeah, I, I can see that in my life. And, and, and so we praise God that the Lord is our shepherd, that, that he doesn't leave us uh, alone to wander. And one of the main ways God promises to be our shepherd in life is by 
raising up for us a king, a king who will shepherd his flock. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew for several months, and one of the uh, notes that he is hitting over and over and over again is this fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of a shepherd. That's what this king has come to do, to shepherd his people. Here's the one who will come and seek and save the lost and bind up the wounded, who will feed the sheep at their proper time. As we saw uh, a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 14, verses 13 to 21, when Jesus in good Psalm 23 style made the people to lie down on green pastures and then fed them. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 from just a few loaves uh, and fish. Our passage this morning begins with a very similar story uh, to that. Jesus feeding another huge crowd, this time 4,000 people, from just seven loaves and a few fish. And so here we see our shepherd in action once again. He's feeding his flock. But as this story moves on, the emphasis shifts, shifts to another aspect of what it means to be a shepherd. Not only providing for the flock, but protecting it as well. So beating off the wolves, if you will, and warning the sheep not to follow them and or be led astray by their teaching. And so here in Matthew 15 and 16, we see Jesus as the king who guards his flock. He's the king who guards his flock. And how sound doctrine, healthy teaching comes from God's word and points us to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Sound doctrine comes from God's word and it points us to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So let's look at this passage, um, but let's pray as we, as we begin. Lord, we want healthy teaching. We want to believe what is true and base our lives on what is true, Lord. And we thank you that in your word you have given us truth. So, God, may we hear your voice this morning. Lord, I pray that you would guard us from error, that you would help us fix our eyes and our ears on you and on what you are saying, Lord. And that as we do, as we hear your voice, that your spirit would be at work in us to change our hearts. Lord, may we see you more clearly and may we trust you more deeply this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage begins again with with the... Uh, a story that sounds pretty familiar if you've been following along in Matthew. Not much more than a chapter earlier, we read a similar story. But look again with me at Matthew 15, verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Cell phone service wasn't too great out there. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples then gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. 
Now, there are several similarities uh, between this story and the one we saw back in chapter 14. So many similarities that a lot of people have suggested this is really just the same historical event kind of duplicated here. Uh, that it only really happened once, and this is just a retelling of it with some, some different details. But if we look at this passage and we compare it with chapter 14, there's really no compelling reason to draw that conclusion. Uh, there are different uh, differences in details, but, but the main reason why we should see these as actually two different accounts is because that's how Jesus sees them. You know, it, later in chapter 16, 9 through 10, he refers to both of them as individual separate events. But the point, however, is quite similar between them. Jesus is the king who feeds his sheep. He's the king who provides for his flock. Here is a king who, unlike the past kings of Israel's story, and unlike the current religious leaders in his day, here's a king who provides for his sheep in fulfillment of God's promises. Yeah, the, the, this idea and this longing for a king and a shepherd was one of the big themes of the Old Testament. It's one of the big things God promised. Uh, it looked forward to a day when Ezekiel 34, 23 tells us that God would set up over his flock one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So there's this longing for a king who's going to come and protect and guide and guard and provide for God's flock. And Matthew's telling us again and again and again in every way he can think to tell us that Jesus is that shepherd. We're seeing it all over this book. Jesus is that shepherd. And this miracle is yet another sign that that king we've been looking for is here. Here is one who does not exploit his followers for selfish gain, but is instead motivated by a heart of compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd. We've seen this compassion he has on the crowds twice before in Matthew. Here's one who, again, as we saw back in chapter 14, shepherds them not just as the son of David, the human king sitting on the throne, but also as the son of God. He does for Israel what no human could do, providing in this miraculous way for 4,000 people in just a few pieces of bread. This is nothing less than the hand of God. Jesus is the king who provides for his sheep. That is an extremely comforting and life-giving truth. Now, it does not mean in Matthew or today that his sheep will never face suffering. Sometimes we make that mistake. We think that, oh, he's going to provide for us, so we think that that means life is going to be without trials. That's not what he's saying here. Uh, it, doesn't, it does, however, mean that we will never face those trials alone. You know, you think back to Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. So the shepherd doesn't necessarily mean that right now we're going to avoid those trials or that valley, but it does mean that we will not face them alone. Jesus is with us in our suffering. And he will be faithful, whether in part now or fully in the end, to carry us safely through those trials and bring us safely home. He's the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, as John 10 tells us. He lays his life down by dying on the cross for our sin. But as John 10 also tells us, 
If he lays it down, he will also take it back up again. He's the good shepherd who rises from the dead to give new life to his sheep. And those who hear his voice and trust him in faith belong to his fold and will be carried safely home. He will provide for them. He will bring us safely home. He will never let us go. And neither can any wolf or thief snatch us out of his hand, he says. He's a shepherd who provides and protects his sheep. That does not mean, however, that wolves won't try. And that's kind of where the story goes at this point. As, as it moves on, Jesus faces yet another round of questioning from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are kind of like the false prophets that Jesus mentions back in chapter 7, verse 15. They come as wolves, but, but dressed in sheep's clothing. So the wolves are, in fact, on the prowl, even though they have no power over the shepherd. And so look with me at chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now again, if you've been following in the story, we've met both of these groups uh, several times before, the Pharisees uh, and the Sadducees. They're both religious leaders among the Jews at that time. The Pharisees were known for their expertise in the law. The Sadducees were uh, connected with temple leadership. These two groups do not often travel together in Scripture. Uh, in fact, they have some pretty opposing ideas about God. But they are united in one thing, at least, and that is their opposition to Jesus. And so they're teaming up here, and they come to Jesus asking him for a sign from heaven, some sort of miraculous spectacle to prove his divine authority and power. But if you think about what we just read at the end of chapter 15, you kind of scratch your head a minute. Didn't we just see some sort of incredible sign? Seven loaves, 4,000 people. I mean, hasn't he been performing signs throughout this entire story? Displaying his divine authority and, and, and heavenly power? And the answer is obviously yes, he has. Which shows us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees aren't really interested in Jesus proving his authority and power. And Jesus knows this, and so he calls them on it. Verse 2, he answered them saying, When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus is calling attention to their spiritual blindness. And he's doing it in, in a rather playful way. The Greek word for heaven in verse 1, show us a sign from heaven, is the same as the word for sky in verses 2 and 3. So the religious leaders have asked for a sign from heaven, and Jesus says, you see signs in the heavens all the times, and you know exactly how to interpret them. You know, red evening, sunny day tomorrow. Red morning, storm, storm's coming. So, so they have all of these, you know, theories for predicting the weather. Uh, they, they know whether to pick up their sunglasses in the morning or whether to grab their umbrella. But Jesus says they've missed the bigger signs, the signs of the seasons or the times. They're still living like it's winter 
in the middle of May. They know what to grab for the morning for the day's weather, but, but they've missed the fact that the whole season has now changed. Aslan is on the move. The winter has ended and the signs of spring are all around. Signs of the new work that Jesus is doing to establish God's kingdom. The religious leaders are blind to those signs, the ones that really matter. They've missed them because they're not really interested in them. That's not what they're looking for. And even if Jesus did perform another sign, it wouldn't change anything for them. So he says in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So their request for a sign is nothing more than a pious smokescreen to cover their own self-righteousness and rejection of God and his king. They want to look good while thumbing their nose at God. That's, that's essentially what Jesus is calling them out on. And so the only sign they're going to receive is the sign of God's victory over sin and death, the sign of Jonah. And Jesus explained what he meant by that back in chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's story becomes a type or a pattern for Christ's death and resurrection. Now, whether the Pharisees and Sadducees will actually see and understand that sign when it happens, we don't know at this part of the story. What we do know and can say about them right here is this. There are people in this world who, because of the evil in their hearts, want nothing more than to lead God's people away from their Savior. That's a reality. It's a dangerous reality. The Bible calls them false teachers, and they are a very real threat to God's flock. When we think of those whose teaching um, or ideas or, or lifestyle poses a threat to God, uh, to God's people today, we tend to think of the irreligious folk, you know, the ones who who uh, openly deny God or or who mock Christianity and the Bible, who glory in their sinfulness and invite everyone else to join into that. And, and there's no question that is a very real threat. Um, but false teachers are just as likely to carry a Bible and sound spiritual and look religious as they are to mock God. You can't always tell by what's on the outside. And so Jesus says you have to look at the fruit. You have to look at the fruit of their teaching, the fruit of their ministry. And in some ways, it's, it's the religious-looking false teachers who pose a greater threat to God's people. They dress their doctrine and their agenda in biblical phrases, but underneath, they're out to exploit God's people for selfish gain. Whether it's money or power or fame, they would take the glory that God alone deserves and they would steal it for themselves. So Jesus beats off the wolves here. He sends the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees packing. But he also makes sure to warn his flock about them. And that's what we see in verses 5 through 12. So verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, 
we brought no bread. You wonder sometimes what's going through the, the minds of, of Jesus' disciples. Um, now, granted, uh, Jesus' metaphor is not the easiest one to pick up on. But somehow the disciples interpret a warning against the, the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as kind of a veiled rebuke for forgetting to pack lunch. They think they're in trouble. Uh, it, it reminds me you know, when you walk in the room and, and your child is doing something they know they're not supposed to be doing and they don't hear you come in and all of a sudden they jump. I didn't do anything, you know. This kind of their response here. But to think that Jesus is worried about bread is not only to miss the point of his metaphor, it's to forget what they just saw happen twice. And so Jesus reminds them, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the thousand, for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? I've got lunch covered, okay? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they finally get it in verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, the yeast of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. With the exception of Matthew thirteen thirty three, every time leaven or yeast is mentioned in Scripture, it's talking about something bad. It's it's one of these symbols of, of, of things that are that are bad. And here Matthew specifies it's the teaching, the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's the the beliefs that they have about God and what they teach others about Him. So Jesus is the King who not only feeds His sheep but also guards His flock. He warns them against following the false teaching of wolves like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as his apostles, they too are going to bear the, that responsibility of protecting the flock from false teachers. And you see them doing that as the story of Scripture moves on. As you get into Acts and you get into some of the epistles, that's exactly what some of the apostles are doing. And as they do it, they're equipping elders and, and shepherds, pastors, to take up that responsibility as well. And when the Bible talks about what it means to be an elder or an overseer or in order to shepherd or pastor God's flock, guarding sound doctrine is among the top responsibilities. It's not the only thing that pastors or elders do. Uh, they need to know the flock. They need to feed the flock with God's word. They need to guide and lead the flock in God's ways. But they also need to guard the flock. They need to guard against the poison of false teaching. As Paul charges the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves as shepherds and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Or as he instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 
I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so part of my job as a pastor and one of the elders of this church, together with the rest of our elders, is to follow Jesus' model of warning all of us, myself and our fellow elders included, against false teaching. And by false teaching, we're not talking about merely misunderstanding a passage. Um, you know, we all do that. Obviously, we want to understand the Bible correctly. That's the goal. But obviously, there are some things that I, I have taught here that are wrong. I just don't know which things they are. And, and if, if I could be shown from Scripture that I'm wrong, I want to correct that because I want to teach what's right. So it's not that we don't Nobody among us has the Bible down perfectly. We're all growing and learning what it means. That's not what we mean or what Jesus is talking about here by false teaching. There's also teaching that is not just incorrect, but deadly. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Teaching that if you believe it, it actually comes between you and your Savior. It distances you and takes you away from the salvation that we have in Christ. That's what Jesus means by false teaching. It's often called with that nasty word, heresy. And it's poison. It threatens to choke off the flock. And to say something like that today just kind of rubs us the wrong way sometimes. It sounds mean-spirited and, and just kind of judgmental and overly critical and, and who are we to make those kinds of decisions and so on. But if you think about what's at stake, the life, health, and salvation of God's people, it's the same kind of judgment or discernment that's required as, as when you make a distinction in your home between food in the fridge and poison under the sink. As it mean-spirited and judgmental of me to keep my kids from drinking Drano? No, I would be absolutely unloving if I were to not make a distinction between food and poison. And so it is with doctrine and teaching. There are some teachings that if you believe them, they are poison. They will take you away from God and the salvation that we have in Christ. And so Jesus wants to warn his flock against that. And that's part of the job of the shepherds of the church, to warn the flock against that. And there are plenty of those kinds of poisons floating around today. So how do we guard sound doctrine in the church? If we look at our passage again, there are two problems with the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, and their teaching, which gives us two specific applications. The first problem is that their false teaching comes because they have departed from the scriptures in some way. So false teaching comes from departing from God's word, the Bible, the scriptures, in some way. And they, they each depart in their own way. Um, in, in some of the preaching workshops that I participate in and attend, uh, there's a helpful illustration that we call staying on the line. And we talked about this in Sunday school last week. 
Uh, there's a line of Scripture. And the goal is to not go above the line and add to Scripture or to go below the line and take away from Scripture, but to stay on the line, to believe and obey and to teach only what the Bible says, which is what God says. We want to stay on the line. So we test all things against the standard of Scripture. The Pharisees had a tendency to go above the line in their teaching. And we saw this a couple weeks ago at the beginning of Matthew 15. Jesus says to them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So they took their tradition, their kind of authorized uh, interpretation and application of God's word, and they made it more binding than God's word itself. They went above the line. They added commands to Scripture, which not only goes above the line, but actually replaces it because they made void the word of God by, by adding to it. The Sadducees had a tendency to go the other direction. They went below the line of Scripture. So Acts 23, verse 8. We read, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Sadducees are are taking things that are taught in Scripture and they're saying, those aren't really there. They, they, They go below the line. They take away from God's word. They deny the spiritual power and even the spiritual realm itself. So whether you depart from Scripture by going above the line or below it, that's the first warning in false teaching. It doesn't line up with God's word. And so our first application is to test everything against God's word. To test all the teaching and doctrine that we encounter against what the Bible actually says. The second problem with the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that because they've departed from Scripture, in their case the Old Testament, they miss the one to whom Scripture was pointing. Jesus. Jesus says to the Jewish leaders in John 5, 39 through 40, look at this verse. It's up on the screen there, but look at what Jesus says here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Good. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So if you stay on the line of scripture, They're going to point you to Jesus. You will see his saving work that he's accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection. That is the heart of the Bible's message. The Old Testament anticipates it. The New Testament proclaims it and applies it. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees missed it. They missed the whole point of the Law and the Prophets, where the whole story was going, the sign of Jonah the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so that's our second application. First, we test all things against God's word. Second, we test all things against the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anything that would would depart from God's word or that would minimize what God has accomplished through the cross and resurrection is false teaching. Sound doctrine comes from God's word and it points us to the cross and resurrection of Christ. And you have to have both. You have to have both those things. Any doctrine that holds up Scripture without Jesus, or any Jesus without the Scriptures, who doesn't look like what the Scriptures say, 
is false teaching. These two cannot be separated. So what I mean by that is this. Following a Jesus who bears no resemblance to the person revealed to us in God's word isn't following Jesus. It's following some cheap, even blasphemous imitation of Jesus. A Jesus who looks more like New Age mysticism than a crucified and risen king. The Jesus of nominal Christianity, or what's been called moralistic, therapeutic deism. You know, where Jesus is, quote, like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves. And he does not become too personally involved in the process. This is Jesus the way I like to think of him. You know, you hear that sometimes. I like to think of Jesus as, you know, this. God doesn't care how we like to think about Jesus. He wants us to know and think about him as he truly is. I mean, try that one on your spouse someday. I like to think of my wife as a, you know, a blonde who brings me breakfast in bed every morning. We're going to have words just because I used that example after the sermon. Okay? It doesn't go very well. So, so why are we so flippant about doing that with God's son? I like to think of him as something other than what he says or who he says he is. We must test our ideas and our doctrines against God's word. And there are, ne- there are any number of false religions that claim allegiance to Jesus, but the person that they follow looks nothing like the one we see in this book. Um, Mormonism, which denies that Jesus is God's son or is divine. Unitarianism, which denies that and a whole number of other things about Jesus. Jehovah's Witness. Even Islam claims Jesus as their own, But he didn't die on the cross. He wasn't the son of God. They they empty the portrait of Jesus we have here of all the things that don't line up with with their religion. And they give you a Jesus who, if you trust him, doesn't get you anywhere. He's not God's son. The the father, if if, if he were to look down and say, well, they're, they're talking about, I recognize the name, but I have no clue who that person is that they're teaching or trusting. So, so, is the Jesus we're hoping in and trusting him, the Jesus as he's revealed to us in God's word in the scriptures. You cannot know Jesus apart from God's revelation of who he is. Neither can you follow the Bible without submitting to and trusting in Jesus and his death and resurrection. The only way that you can claim to follow God's word without holding fast to the gospel of Jesus is to either go above the line or below it. Because if you stay on it, you meet Jesus. And if you go above the line or below it, if you take away to, from or add to scriptures, what happens is that you make yourself your own savior. Think about that. It's what happens when we go below the line. I'll take another example what we call theological liberalism. So it's the kind of theology that claims to follow the Bible but denies its power. It denies anything supernatural about it. 
just like the Sadducees. They went below the line. And so the goal, you read a, you read a parable or, or you read a story, a miracle story like the feeding of the 4,000, and, and the goal is to demythologize that story. In other words, to remove the myth part. And by myth, they mean anything supernatural or miraculous. Kind of like Thomas Jefferson taking a penknife to his Bible and cutting out all of the miraculous parts of it. Anything that really referred to God. And so the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't really a miracle. It was a mass of people inspired by the generosity of a little boy who was willing to give up and share his lunch with others. And so out come all the other lunches. And and they all shared and, and had a feast, and there were 12 baskets of what was left over. So it's explaining the miraculous in naturalistic terms. Which makes which means that Jesus is no longer the hero of that story. You are. He's just a good example, but, but the salvation and hope of humanity is in your hands. The gospel's no longer good news of what God has done. It's good advice of what we should do. And it cuts, it, it sounds spiritual, it sounds religious, but it actually cuts us off from our only hope of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. I mean, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that that's what's really happening. The only reason you would read it that way is a predisposition against anything supernatural. You can't have the Bible without Jesus. It also happens when you go above the line of Scripture and add to it. Think of legalism, like the Pharisees. So adding commands in order to keep those commands and earn my righteousness before God. So I look good and you look bad. It's kind of the goal. But again, who's the savior in that situation? It's not Jesus, it's me. And if I can keep up the show, I will earn my righteousness before God. Which only happens so long as I'm able to keep up the show and usually ends up fostering a bitterness and a despair in the end. Or you think of what's called the prosperity gospel. uh, So-called health and wealth gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And the teaching goes like this. God does not want his children to suffer. That's not part of his plan. If you're a child of the king, then you should live like royalty. And the only thing that's keeping you from the health and the wealth and the prosperity and the happiness that you deserve is your lack of faith. That's how the teaching goes. Which, it goes below the line of scripture, taking away the role that suffering plays in the life of a Christian. And then it goes above the line of Scripture, claiming promises that God has made for the end and demanding that he make them right now, immediately. There will be no more sin, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death in the end when Christ returns. But it claims those and demands them right now. But God will only grant them if you demand them. And so, basically, the prosperity gospel teaches a very weak and puny God whose hands are tied unless you show up with your faith. And so once again, who's the Savior? It's not Jesus. It's you. The only thing standing between you and the victorious Christian life is you and your lack of faith. And the fruit of that isn't so much reconciliation with God or or satisfaction in God. It's stuff from God. That's the ultimate goal. Friends, this is, this is very common. That's why I'm kind of belaboring the point. 
This is what you pick up uh, off the shelf at Barnes & Noble or see on the TV when you turn TBN on. It's poison. It's poison in a hundred ways because it turns what Jesus has done on the cross into a means for personal gain. It's deadly. Sound doctrine comes from God's word and it points us to Jesus and his death and resurrection as our only hope. We must stay on the line of scripture, testing all things against God's word and against the death and resurrection of Jesus. If it fails to line up with the Bible or if it makes light or little or empties Jesus of what he's accomplished through his death and resurrection, it's false teaching. It's poison. But the gospel is food. The gospel is food so simple you can feed it to an infant and yet so satisfying and life-giving that the, the most godly, aged saint is never bored with it, but still fully nourished. And it's so much better than the alternative, partly because it's true and because it actually deals with the problems of this world and the longings of our hearts in a way that nothing else can. The gospel takes seriously the sinfulness of sin. It calls evil what it is, evil and wrong. The brokenness of this world, the injustice that fills it. but, But then the gospel actually does something about it by declaring to us that God entered into this broken world in his son, as the son. He he took all that's wrong with this world on himself, all the brokenness and pain, all of the sadness and the sorrow, all, all of the sin and rebellion against God. Jesus took all of that on himself, even as he bore his father's holy anger against our sin and rebellion. He bore what was wrong with this world, what was wrong with my heart and your heart on the cross in order to deal decisively with it, to pay the penalty we deserve, to clear our guilty name, and then to give us new life through his resurrection. There is a fresh start with Jesus. Through his resurrection, he has broken the winter's curse. And he brings forth the summer of his new creation. It's the down payment. We look forward to a world made new. The world as it was meant to be through Jesus. And that is the hope of all who trust in him. Now the summer of new creation is not yet here. But with Jesus' resurrection, spring has dawned. And it doesn't look like it outside. But... For those who have eyes to see, the signs are everywhere. Lives that are being changed. Relationships that are being mended and reconciled. Marriages that are being healed. Sins being repented of. Hope given to the hopeless. Significance being found. And most of all, sinners being reconciled with God. The signs of spring are everywhere. Only Jesus can do that. We cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior. And as we live out our days in this meantime, waiting for summer, if you will, Jesus will be faithful to guard his flock. 
to keep them in truth. He is our mighty fortress, as we sang earlier. Sound doctrine comes from God's word, and it points us to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you don't let us wander. And Lord, we confess that as we think about the implications of this, there's some uncomfortable thoughts that come to our mind and go through our hearts. People we love who've been led astray. Uh, Questions that, that, that we've had that we're not sure about. And Lord, we pray that, that you would be gentle in your spirit by guiding us in all truth. Lord, would your spirit rebuke us where we need rebuke? Would you strengthen us and encourage us where we are discouraged and weak? Lord, would you keep us near the cross? Would you keep us dependent every single day on your finished work? And may our hearts be filled with the joy that comes from being reconciled to the God of the universe through faith in his son, Jesus.